Welcome to Supercharge My Practice, a podcast dedicated to helping you build a thriving and fulfilling natural therapies business. Each week, your host, Anil Mustafa, interviews leading practitioners and field experts, sharing proven tactics, inspiring stories, and actionable steps that will help you unlock your potential. Supercharge My Practice is proudly brought to you by My Appointments Practice Management System. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Supercharge My Practice podcast. Today, I have Kira Sutherland, who is a much-loved naturopath, nutritionist, herbalist with over 25 years of clinical expertise. Mm. Uh, she was the recipient of the 2019 Integrative Medicine Award for Excellence in Practice and is renowned for her dynamic and straightforward teaching approach, aiming to empower individuals to integrate knowledge seamlessly into their lives. Kira, welcome. It is such an yeah, honor and pleasure you. to have you here. Thank you. I'm at 30 years this year. Actually, I should change that bio, but it doesn't matter. Time to update the bio on your website then. 30 years. Yeah, but that sounds really old then, right? (laughs) That is incredible. Absolutely incredible. So let's go straight back to the start of your journey, though, because I'd really love to dive into how it is that you've become so successful. So the first step here is understanding your clinical journey. So you've just graduated from school. Did you go straight into clinical practice? And if so, how did you get your first client? Yeah, so back when I studied naturopathy, I sound like a really old person there, but when you studied naturopathy in the early 90s, you also did massage. Massage, You had to do a whole remedial massage diploma. So most of us, including myself, after a year of studying naturopathy, we were all qualified as massage therapists. So a lot, I would say 75% of us were out working in clinics, seeing massage clients while we were finishing study. And so by the time I graduated as a naturopath, nutritionist, herbalist, all that stuff, you were already set up in clinic. Like you were already used to seeing clients, you, you know, depending on what, back then everybody was in clinics, you know, so much stuff is now online, but you were, it it was just this great benefit because you were already ready for clinical practice. I was used to talking to clients. So the transition to naturopathy was actually, for me, it was really easy because it was already set up. It was just the point of finally being able to say to my clients, Hey, I can legally, you know, do all these other things. Now the, the problem was Um, I was popular enough as a massage therapist (laughs) that I had no space to see naturopathy clients. So I remember actually having to like block out time in my diary, hoping someone would book in for naturopathy. Um, So I had, I think it was, you know, a lot of people love that there's not massage included in naturopathy anymore, but I I think it. I'm one of these people that thinks it, it added a lot to your understanding of the human body and what bodies actually felt like and what health feels like under your hands. And it was an easy step to clinical practice. Mm, that's how I got into practice myself. I'm a myotherapist by trade, but in my final yeah. year of myotherapy, I started working in a chiropractic clinic. Yeah. And I learned so much over that sure. time working for a yeah. chiropractor about business and then yes. just those initial stages of how to talk to clients and things like that. So I think that's a huge step up, but I I don't, it's not part of the course, naturopathy course anymore, is it? No, I think it's an elective to do some, to do some massage, just like homeopathy is an elective. I think flower essences, it depends which college or which university you now go to. So, but yeah, first clients, my first, hmm, 
So most people know I specialize in sports nutrition, and that came from being a really sporty person my whole life. But about the time I was graduating, I was also heavily involved in triathlon. And so a lot of my first clients came through um, connections within triathlon community or people being like, oh, you're a nutritionist and you do triathlon, I'll come. So I really think my first clients came from activities I was involved with externally. And I think we forget what a great place that is. To, not that I was heavily marketing, but yeah, I actually gave away two gift vouchers to a like charity function of my triathlon club. And I can still remember those two people coming for their free consult and that just ricocheting into all these other people coming for consult. So it was yeah, I gave a little and I got a lot back. Got a lot back, absolutely. I, got, I really got a lot back from that. It's funny to think it was just these two vouchers that kind of started this whole thing. But if anybody knows triathletes, they talk a lot. So mm. they'll tell each other stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's it. and that's the best way to build your practice. I think the problem that a lot of practitioners face when they first get into practice is the lack of confidence in talking yeah. to their clients, asking them to rewalk. Uh, just those basic, you know, how oh. to manage, how to give the best to your clients without also sacrificing yourself too much as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. It's I re I remember being like, would you like to book back in? Yeah. <laughs> like, and whereas now I'm like, so you I, I, maybe I'm too blase after 30 years, but now I'm almost the opposite. They're like, well, when should I come back? And I'm like, well, a lot of people come back in three weeks or you can just call me when you feel like you want to come back. But at nine times out of 10, they cut, they book for three weeks, right? Yeah. It's just, I don't even think about that, but I do remember in the beginning being really nervous to ask people to book back in and, and, you know, spending a lot more time on cases, A, because you had the free time because you weren't as busy, but yeah, sometimes I hear about how much time people spend on treatment plans now. And I'm like, that's not healthy. You can't, you're not, it's not viable to spend mm -hmm. that much time on each person. So I do supervise in student clinic at one of the universities. And um, yeah, I'm always trying to encourage them to kind of do it all within a consult rather than take it home and do a lot extra. Mm, absolutely. So in those early days, can you remember any other sort of major issues or major challenges that you faced starting as a practitioner? Um, well, back then, again, there wasn't online things, right? There weren't uh, online dispensaries to use. And so the big, and we were all in physical practices. And I think that had a lot of positives to it because you had the people that owned the business to learn, like, you watch how to run a business by being in it, right? And so you would learn about their booking or their reception or how they you know, ran their books and how you had to pay for your space. So I think, you know, it was more expensive in some ways to be within a clinic. Um, that was a big thing, um, figuring out how to advertise or who to, you know, where to find that market, I think was a big thing. Um, other problems, having the money to have a dispensary. You know, I would say 75% of people don't even have dispensaries anymore. Whereas back then you were, you know, slowly ordering stuff in and it was, you know, you were holding five, $10,000 of stock. And, um, that was, that hurt after university. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And you're a mentor as well and you lecture yeah. and you're in student clinics. Do you find that these are similar challenges to what you see in, in, those, in those environments with other practitioners that are new into the industry? I think, you know, there is st- there are still a lot of physical clinics and it's interesting to watch the students that jump to a physical clinic first. I often see them progressing faster than people that are just staying home and running online clinics. Don't get me wrong. I'm at home on an online. Cl- I, I do have a physical space, but I have my own home clinic now. Um, I think we're very isolated right now. And I, I think you know, students are so desperate to finish, which I was too, and get out there, but then they end up in these very isolated situations because they're at home online clinicking because that's, you can do that for free, right? Or, you know, you pay for appointment scheduling and you pay for a few things, but but the expense to run a clinic now is much cheaper online, but we're missing the community within our industry and sometimes i worry about that because we don't have as many face-to-face um you know conferences and get-togethers and we don't you learn so much from other practitioners i remember coming out of cases into the dispensary and i was like oh my god what am i doing with this case and i had another person sitting there on their break able to go oh have you thought about this have you you know so I think there was that beauty of community and, you know, I think we're an industry that's not overly competitive with each other. We're happy to see, or at least I feel like we're happy to see other people successful. So people are willing to share ideas and thoughts, but I I do worry how much community we're missing, which is probably why all the mentoring programs people run are so successful now, because there is, that creates your you know, you need your tribe, you need your group. And there's some great Facebook group. Tammy Guess has got one, Napreneur group. That's fantastic. For oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah. But it's still not the same as having that one-on-one person or that person in that same space as you. Yeah. I think a lot of people discount that thinking that they don't want to give up. Usually it's a 50% of their income if they're contracting, for example, and they're just yeah. starting out. They feel like that's a lot. But as someone who's run my own practice and had lots of practitioners working in my space, what those practitioners coming in don't realize is that most of us are operating our businesses at 30% profit. So 70% of everything that comes through the door yeah. is expenses. So they're seeing it as why should I give up 50% yeah. of income, but they're actually earning more than what the practice owners are typically because oh, yeah. of expenses. And practice owners are amazing people. Like I have a lot of friends that have owned practices over the years and that's a, it's an amazing job and it's a thankless job because they are, there's so much back end that just the practitioners don't realize. And I see that sometimes you see people going, oh, I only make this much profit off of everything I sell. That's not very fair. And I'm always like, well, are you holding that stock? Are you ordering it? Are you unpacking it? Are you putting it in the system? Like the, when you, yeah, it's, it's amazing the time and energy to run your own clinic. I have to admit I've never run my own clinic. I've always been within friends' clinics, but I see what's happening all the time. So, yeah, no. Mm-mm. But that being in that environment is where it is. So even if you are losing 50% of your income, if you're not having to worry about paying off expenses, it's the experiences, it's what you're learning in that yeah. clinical environment that is so, so, so pivotal. Yeah. But I or, do. Or even, sorry, I've totally interrupted, or because um, I'm going to lose this thought if I don't say it. You know, people that are on percentages, 
don't realize sometimes when they don't have clients, it's not costing them money, but it's costing the clinic money. Mm. And and I, I think sometimes people forget that as well, right? Where, you know, that whole deal of do you pay a certain amount per day to have the room that you're renting or do you pay percentages? And the pluses and minuses for that are very different, both for practitioners and clinic owners, right? It's a hard, it's a hard situation. It is absolutely, but for me, that's um, like that one year that I worked with a chiropractor was in absolutely yeah. invaluable for me. And I and I do respect the practitioners that are going straight online because it does feel like it's safer because you don't have to then outlay oh, the money. Sure. But it's for the sure. experience that you're losing that I think is you know is really yeah. really cool for a lot yeah. of practitioners. Very true. Or just you know, and if you are one of those practitioners listening that has gone straight into online it's amazing but make sure you create a group make sure you know whether it's you join all the you know strictly practitioners an entrepreneur on facebook even if you're not normally on facebook because so many people gen z's and millennials often some aren't on facebook it's worth it for business to be in those groups mm. um joining mentoring groups or create a lot of my students graduating create a whatsapp group and they get they meet up and they continue the conversation with each other and i think that's really powerful to grab those five or six people you were in student clinic with that you got on with and um share things i i sit oh god i probably sit in 10 different whatsapp groups from previous clinical groups so i watch them all ask each other questions and sometimes i'll chime in sometimes i don't um, but it's really interesting to watch them grow as practitioners over the years maybe i'm a bit of a voyeur watching that but, <laughs> that, but no, that is, I, I participate <laughs> that's incredible though i think that's a really good way for you to grow as a, a clinician because you're seeing how your peers yeah. are progressing along who are in mm. that same journey mm. i love that now, another common thing that I think practitioners really struggle with is patient compliance. And I think for, for those of you that are in the ingestive therapies, it's a bit different mm -hmm. to those that are in the tactile therapies because yeah. with the tactile therapies, you've got your hands on, you've, you know, you're physically touching your client, they're physically feeling a benefit, whereas with the ingestive therapies uh, and your nutritionists, it often takes a bit of time before they'll start seeing a result. So the compliance yeah. is a little bit more uh, challenging for those ingestive therapists. So I'd love to know, mm. have you found it difficult to get your clients to follow your advice? And what advice would you have for practitioners that are struggling to get their patients to follow their treatment plans? Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's such an interesting point. I actually have a lot of opinion on that. Um, <laughs> I, there's a fine line between telling a client enough things to do and telling them too much. Mm, big one. But I'm not a fan of only giving a client two or three things to do because you think they might not be motivated because we also have to give our client the opportunity to be highly motivated and give them enough. So I think there's that fine line. I probably give too many instructions, but I say to my client, look, I don't really expect you to do all of this. I've written these 10 points I want you to do, but see how many you can integrate and, and they'll pick the ones that work for them. And, and, you know, later on, they often get to the other things or you'll, yeah, I think, yeah, patient compliance is it's an interesting one because is mm, I'm gonna be controversial here. Is it my responsibility? Don't know. Like it's up to them. They've paid me their money. 
they're going to choose what to do. And I think sometimes clients come as well and they think they're ready and they get all the stuff and then they go and they don't do it because they're kind of processing to get ready to do it. And it might not be till their second appointment and it might not be till they've canceled two appointments and finally show up four months later that they're like, I haven't actually done anything, but I'm now ready. And I think, I think we forget that all of our patients have their own timing and their own life um, to play with. And sometimes I think we need to give clients a little bit more ease and grace in getting there. And then I also think I'm not a fan of giving, I'm ingestive, so I'm not a fan of giving too many supplements or herbs, um, you know, Two to three things is probably what most of my clients walk out with max, unless there's, but I'm also not dealing with cancer. I'm not dealing with massive chronic disease. And I think we sometimes overwhelm our clients to take too many things. And it's the cost of that that then becomes prohibitive or I'm going to go controversial here. I think people are going to disagree with me. And again, I work with a different subset of people. I'm... I think we overtest. Mm. I think as ingestive people, okay, I'm not in the fertility space. I'm not for sure lots of tests. I'm not specializing in gut microbiome. There's a place for testing, absolutely. And I do test with my clients, but I think there's a beauty in our industry. There's a beauty and a skill in our industry to know how to ask enough questions to treat without testing being your first protocol for everything. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely run tests and I ask for tests, but I sometimes think we're losing our skill. I've totally segued for you here, but I think we're losing our skill as question askers and listeners and, and, do I have to have a test to absolutely justify that I think this person's adrenals are just, you know, exhausted and that they have high cortisol? No, I can kind of see that by symptom. Why don't I treat? And then if I run into a problem, I'll test. But and and some clients need testing for compliance. I'll bring it back around. Um, some clients need the testing verification so for them to be compliant. But I, yeah, I, I'm a test if I need, if I'm stuck rather than first line. But again, I'm not in a space of specialty where I need to do a lot of tests. So mm -hmm. I interviewed uh, Daniel Baden uh, for my podcast, right? I love Daniel. Uh, yeah, he's, an, he's incredible. And he said exactly the same thing, Kira. He said that he's finding that a lot of the practitioners oh. coming out now are going into testing as the first line of defense because uh, that they feel like that's going to help them in diagnosing their patients. Whereas, like you, he'd said, you listen to your patients, try to work out what's going on before you yeah. do those testing because it does become quite expensive for so a patient expensive. as well. Yeah, and, and I would much prefer $400 spent on seeing me and some herbs or supplements or better food rather than, you know, running about tests are so expensive. And I think one of the compliance problems, maybe why I went down this route is people have to pay for the consult and then they had to pay for all this testing. And I'm like, far out. I just spent $2,000 
for them before I even got to the supplements or before I, you know, and that's why they don't come back for a second visit because they spent too, they spent all their money on testing. And like I said, there is a reason for testing. I'm not having go at people that have to do, you know, that are in certain areas that you have to do it. But yeah, I see people wanting tests where I'm like, if literally you could figure that out off of symptoms. Mm, yeah. And in my own personal experience, I went to see a naturopath who sent me her consult was over $200. And then I, she sent me for over $700 worth of testing and then prescribed over $300 worth of supplements. I loved her energy. I liked her. I believed that she was going to be able to help me. So I did everything she asked me to do. But there is that ping of going, oh, God, this is like really, really expensive. And then there's the follow-up visits as well. For me, I think the most disappointing from a patient perspective was that even after getting all of those tests done, it was there was very little in the way of treatment that revolved around those tests, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah. some of the tests were, uh, one of them was a glyphosate test. I eat organic food, so I didn't feel like it was necessary, but I listened to the yeah. advice anyway. Yeah. But there was something on, I've got issues with oxalates, and so I'd been given a list of foods to avoid with oxalates and that sort of stuff. But all the other tests, I have absolutely no idea what they were testing for because as a patient I walked out going, okay, how much has this helped me other than knowing that maybe yeah. I've got an issue with oxalates? And yeah. so I think there was a little bit of, I don't know if resentment is the right word, but it was that yes. second guessing that practitioner because of that. Well, part of the problem is at university, and I lecture at university, so I know the curriculum, and it's not the university's fault either, but the direction we're going in clinical practice is to be completely evidence-based. Mm which is amazing. And people love that because then we can, you know, feel more seen and, and I get it, but, but in that we're teaching people a lot more testing, right? We're, you know, and we can access a lot more tests, although clients have to pay for it. So we're, we make them understand all the testing in their degree. So I think there's also the assumption as you come out of the degree, oh my God, I had to learn about all these tests. I should run all these tests. So I, I don't, I'm not blaming the practitioners. I'm not blaming the universities. I just think it's because of this, the way we have to teach them because they have to safely understand and be able to read tests and stuff like that. But what I say to my students as they're finishing clinical experience, you know, at the university, I'm like, is this test, is the outcome of getting this test going to change how you treat the person? Mm, that's the question I make them all ask will getting these results alter what you want to do with them or not and 50% of the time they're like no it's just to justify what I want to do or to verify it and I'm like well why don't you just treat you know like natural therapies yes they can be dangerous they can interact with things but you know if someone's super stressed do I need to know their morning cortisol or am I just going to give them the same herbs anyway? I'm probably going to give pretty similar herbs and, you know, B vitamins or C or whatever I'm choosing to do. I've got that all here. I can see the person is stressed. Why can't I just treat, right? And um, somebody that's booking into a practitioner and paying money, they're already trusting you. Yes, now and then you you get the odd client that's been forced to come by some partner or friend. But nine times out of 10, they've already bought into the fact that you know what you're doing. You don't need, I just think, yeah, that's me. I'm very, but I'm very Daniel Baden style. Daniel Baden was actually one of my teachers. 
the very last year he lectured, he was one of my nutrition teachers. And then when I started lecturing, he used to come in and substitute for me when I had to go away. I love Daniel. He's incredible. And it's quite interesting because I've interviewed quite a few practitioners now and I'm calling us the old school practitioners. Oh, we are. Out for a little while now. But the mentality in how we practice is so different to some of the newer practitioners coming out now. A lot yeah. of the business is around networking and and growing in a uh, in a community style of being engaged in your community, whereas now people are coming out and it's all about social media and being engaged online and trying to connect with clients yeah. online, which is easier and harder at the same time. I'm going to go down the route and saying it's actually harder to connect with patients oh, online so than it tiring. is. Yeah. And tiring, absolutely, as well. But it's interesting to see that 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 old school method of that's how we became so successful, but it's almost like people are moving away from those things because Mm. they need the assurances, they need the tests, they need the social media following to make them feel as if they're a good practitioner or they know what they're doing. And I think that's it's a little bit unfortunate, but I do totally respect and appreciate that because that is the generation that we're in now. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. Mm. I'm saying we need to find a middle ground Mm. and and cultivate both sides of it. Yeah, we absolutely need testing. I'm not anti-testing, but I just, there's a beauty of traditional naturopathy and natural therapies that there's, you know, the history and the knowledge in those traditional methods are all now being proven by science. You know, I watched a post two or three days ago by Huberman. He's coming out this month. He's big social media. He's a professor at Stanford. Amazing kind of biohacker coming out with all this stuff. And he did a post the other day that was literally, I don't even think he knows, but it, you know, the evidence is these are the eight things that we should be doing for optimum health. And it's literally the naturopathic list that we have called nature's seven healers for like hundreds of years. I I can remember (laughs) these lists in my studying and Pavo Arola, who nobody knows who he was, and back to like, um, you know, Bernard Jensen and these really old naturopaths a hundred years ago and and, uh, and Kniep and, and people like that, Sebastian Kniep. And it's like, we are literally just regurgitating which is awesome, the same philosophies, but we now have evidence behind it, but it's still that traditional healing methods because that how the body heals hasn't actually changed, just how we look at it has. Mm, interesting. So let's just touch back, um, back, circle back to where we were before on client retention. Uh, and we talked about giving away too much information to clients. And again, that's in my personal experience in the same naturopath that I saw. She bombarded yeah. with so much information and massive brain fog at the time as well. Taking it all in was too much. And mm. I'd specifically said, look, can you can you put this down on paper so I can come back and read it and understand? And and um, she never did. She never came back to me and put what, it. In you never got a, you never got a written or a typed treatment plan. Not not for this specific practitioner that I had oh. seen. Uh, with others, I have, but not with this one. So she bombarded with me a lot of information, and then I had nothing to do with that because I couldn't I couldn't remember anything that she'd no, asked. What, well, what if you're not auditory? Like I wouldn't remember that because I'm not auditory, right? I need visual. I need yeah. You know, it depends on your learning style, right? Absolutely. And so this is the two complexities here. I've had one practitioner who said, here's all this information, but given me no follow-up and no information in writing. And then there's another one who's given me way too much. And personally, yeah. as a pra- patient, I would prefer 
way too much in writing because then, like you said, you can kind of take those bite-sized pieces and then implement some things and then come back and implement the rest. So I guess the lesson here is do what you feel is right for your patients. Like give them as much information as you feel that they need, but don't judge on giving them too much or not giving them enough. Give them what you think may be right and just yeah. follow up with them and kind of see how they go from there. And like you said, making sure that you're telling your patients, look, this is a lot to take in, but yeah. just take those points. Would that be your main takeaway when it comes to getting patients yeah. to follow your advice? Yeah. I mean, I will go through, I'm, I'm going to sound really old school here. I have, I have, you know, a program and I, you know, they answer questions. They fill out a bit of a form before the consult and, and, you know, everything's digital these days. I, I actually still handwrite my treatment plan as the clients in front of me. Mm-hmm. And then depending on how messy I wrote, I either have to retype it and send it, or I actually just digitize it and I send them the handwritten notes because I tend to create treatment plans as we're talking rather than me grab a bunch of information from somebody and then I'm like, okay, now this is what we're going to do. I tend to teach as I listen. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is being a practitioner for longer. But, you know, if I'm going to say to somebody, you know, how much water do you drink? And they don't drink any water. I literally write it as we talk about it. I'm like, so let's get the water intake up. And it gives them the chance in that moment to ask more questions or, oh, I don't like the taste of water rather than just receiving the info later. So I have, and it's kind of an old school way of doing it, but I find there's more teaching as I ask the questions. And so then by the end of the consult, I then of course say, okay, here's my other stuff I want you to do. And I write it in front of them. And then I basically go over the whole list again with them. So they've heard it twice and have it to see by the end of the consult. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. That So I'm actually going after, so so that the consult ends ends up as more of a dynamic conversation rather than extraction of information and a a vomit of treatment plan. Mm. It doesn't always work that way. And I do sometimes write more after I'm done with them and send it on. But I... To go back to the actual question, there's a, well, it depends on how we work and, um, you know, how much, you know, if it was a really difficult case, yes, I'm going to go away and work on it afterwards. But um, there's a fine line, but I just also see sometimes people, yeah, give too much. Like, I don't think we scientifically have to justify everything we're telling a client. We can just tell them to do something and then they, if they want more info, they're going to ask. So I try to keep treatment plans more. It might have a big list to do, but I try to keep it concise. But I also see, especially students, not give enough. They're like, oh, eat more vegetables. I'd be like, if I paid a couple hundred dollars and someone just told me to eat more vegetables, I would blow my top, right? So you have to give them enough. And even if the danger I see is sometimes we get clients that we think, oh my God, they're not going to do anything, right? Like their attitude or they're so unhealthy. I'm never going to see them again. They're never going to come back. And I, I think I thought that more in early practice, right? And I had a few clients that I was like, I'm going to write 
what I need, but literally this guy's never going to come back. He's never going to follow anything. I'm just going to write it off that he'll no show the next appointment. It was just the attitude I had in my head. And he was pretty unhealthy. So I gave him his 10 things to do, sent him away. I was like, he'll never come back. He ended up coming back and having done all 10 things I asked him, which were enormous for what he was previously doing, and did three other things that I must have verbally talked about, but didn't write down. And his whole life had changed. And I was like, what do you, what do you, like, I literally wrote you off as a no-show. And he ended up being this seven-year long-term, the biggest shift I've ever seen in a client in my life. And I wrote him off mentally. Mm. But, and he, you know, so maybe it's the the knowledge or the wisdom of hindsight because I've had so many clients, but I was lucky enough to have that experience early in my career where he taught me not to judge. Mm, I love that. Obviously. And it was really, it was really beautiful. He actually passed on. I'm allowed to talk about him. I asked him before he passed away. He passed on seven years after um, I met him and he, yeah, his health journey changed me, which again, part of the gift of what we do is what all the clients do for us, mm. right? I think we forget, and I, I'm getting philosophical here. I think we forget, A, we can be so amazing for other people's lives, nothing better than running into somebody later and they're like, oh my God, that changed my life. And you like want to cry because you're like, that's why I do it. But the gift that we get from all of our clients, I think we don't talk about that enough. You know, how we evolve as people because of the people we interact with. Yeah, absolutely love that. Ooh, I went very philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And I've seen that a lot myself in practice and I've heard it from a lot of other practitioners where they've written a patient off thinking they're not going to follow the advice and that you've literally changed their lives. It's absolutely yeah. incredible. And I think the takeaway from me, for me for that is that, when you see the patient in front of you and they look like they're a little bit despondent, we automatically think it's because they're not gelling with us or that they're, they're not going to be that patient that's going to listen to our advice. But what's actually happening on the other end is that they're processing yeah. all of this information and, and in their heads as you're talking, they're probably thinking about, okay, well, how can I do that? How can yeah. I do that? Can I do this? So the the reason why you're thinking that they're not gelling with you is because they're in their own heads trying to work yeah. out how am I going to follow this advice? Yeah. And so they're really loving the information you're giving you giving them, but they're not responding to you because they're mm. just in their own heads. So I love those lessons. So true. And you know, half of those clients that end up being really magical, I didn't gel, I don't think I gel, gelled with in that first consult. You know, and when we're a little bit uncomfortable with a client or a little bit you know, frustrated and we think, oh, I want to refer them on or, oh my gosh, I don't want to let them book back in because um, we'd go through that in our head sometimes. Absolutely. And um, sometimes they're just those amazing teachers for us. And you, yeah, you, you know, uncomfortable clients make us grow and we have to be growing as practitioners to stay relevant and stay connecting. And I, and yeah, if I think back, the clients that have really changed me were the ones that I struggled with in the beginning. 
Mm, absolutely. I can actually think of a, a one client that came to see me and I was one of those practitioners because I started at 19. So very awesome. young and, and seeing all yeah. these patients that were so much older than me, there was already that inferiority complex, you yeah. know, that I wasn't good enough. Uh, and so I compensated for that by oversharing. And that was more trying to explain what, what I'm doing and why I'm doing mm. it, and what they should expect from their treatment. And a lot of patients love that. But then this one gentleman came in and he said, Anil, I don't care. I just want you to fix me. And I went, oh, but don't you know what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do or why I'm doing it? Yeah. No, don't care. Just fix me. And that is the reality that a lot of patients come to see us. They don't want the jargon. They don't want, they don't want you to have to justify why you're doing what you're doing. They know and they trust you. They like you. Yeah. They've come to see you for that reason. Just give them what you think that they need. Yeah. And if you're finding that they're asking more questions, that's your prompt to go, okay, well, I'll give yes. them a little bit more information. Good point. And you're such a good point. Yes. It's so true. Mm. And I think. As a seasoned practitioner for both of us, we've learned that along the way, right? Like now I'm like, here's what you do. Boom, boom, boom. And there's, I don't just, I, I do use teaching moments of like, I work with a lot of teenage athletes. So sometimes I'm trying to explain a little bit of the physiology so that they understand why I'm asking them to do something. I'm not giving them clinical research. I'm like, this is what you need because of this. And this is why you're going to feel better. And, um, and it saves a lot more time when you believe in yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because we do, we spin it if we get nervous and it's so much more energy and, and that does come with time and with clinical practice. Definitely. It's hard. You, I'm sure I did the same as you. Absolutely. And I think one thing I've learned of late is understanding that patients come to us because we know more than they do. So when we're in our own heads going, oh, I don't know enough, I don't know enough, well, actually, we know more than our patients do. That's already one step ahead. They just want somebody to help guide them. And I think that's something that a lot of practitioners forget. They think that they have to have all the answers before the patient even walks in the door. But you can grow with that patient. You can go and do research if it's something you're not confident in. And that patient is going to love you more for being honest and helping them find that right path rather than writing them off and going, I can't help them or it's outside of my my expertise. It's, this is the opportunity for you to learn and grow as a practitioner as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because I see it in student clinic as well, because they want to read the form that the patient has filled out. And then I see sometimes, you know, and they want to prep and they're new and I get it, but sometimes I see them over prepping. And I know new practitioners will do this where they over, like you send out this form, they need to fill it out and they read it all do a bunch of research and then they write down all these ideas already. And I'm always like, don't do that. Like read it, but you still need to see the person in front of you, not their answers. Cause half their answers are probably not quite correct. Or you need clarification on that answer. And um, like intake forms, I don't give a really big intake form because I want to see the person as they answer the questions. Right. Mm. And um And I'm always trying to say to the newbie practitioners, don't over prep, don't assume what to treat because you don't know who you have. You need to know who the person is in front of you, not their ailment, right? Like there's some really famous quote by who knows, Um, you know, quotes are always ascribed to different people, but it was always about, it's much more important to know the person you have in front of you than the disease they have. I've, I've misquoted that, but, and I think we forget that. Right. And that's the beauty of natural therapies is we're supposed to be holistic and looking at that whole person mentally, emotionally, physically 
not just their ailments and their symptoms. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. We, that. we do. We do indeed. It's a good opportunity to get that, to know that patient when you are deep diving deeper into their history while they're in front of you as well. Absolutely. So Kira, my next question for you is that you've enjoyed a significant successes in your life as a practitioner. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What do you think makes you so remarkable as a clinician? What, why do you think has caused you to be as so, so successful? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I, yeah. Hmm. Besides being <laughs> a hard worker. <laughs> um, I, let me rephrase it. What do no, you know? It's a good question. Apart? I can, I can go there. Go on though. Sorry. Yeah. But what do you think sets you apart as a practitioner? Um, I still absolutely love doing it, but I have chosen to evolve how I'm doing it and what I studied and I've gone down different niches or I'm still, most people would see it still as one niche, but I've kind of veered around. I mean, we all add different feathers into our cap, but I think, yeah, I, I think I've gone down different niches and it wasn't like, oh my God, I have to have a niche. There was no niching when I graduated except for fertility, which was like the last thing I was going to do. I didn't even like... I allowed the niche and the people to find me. And then I went and did more study in what I was interested in. Or so I think, I think that constant evolution, there was something else that just popped into my brain about why. Um, hmm. Oh my God, I had something else and I've just lost it. So evolving, niching, Keeping up with how the industry is changing, you know, um, not that I'm incredible at social media, but I'm uh, um, one of my biggest successes and shifts came from um, learning to hire people to help me, mm-hmm. even though it was an expense, not trying to do everything myself. Um, that was a game changer for me. Um Taking some courses and how to run business was a game changer, not just being a practitioner. And I hear a lot of students graduate. They're like, I haven't learned anything business wise. That's ridiculous that the degree didn't teach me that. And I'm like, no, the degree is here to teach you how to be a practitioner. Then you need to figure out how to run a business. That's your job on your own later. So taking business courses. Um, what else? doing things that scared me, asking to speak at things or challenging myself. Um, What else? Always having a tribe of other practitioners that we all support each other. There was a really big one and it's on the tip of my tongue. You can ask another question at the same time, but there was, oh, I'm focused on as much as I'm into business and I love making money and I'm quite successful, my clients and their health has always been the priority. And I refuse to do things with clients just because it's going to make me money. Mm. And that sounds really silly because we are trying to be in business, but I really hurt when I see practitioners being talking about 
yeah, that differentiation of why, mm, am I making sense what I just said? Without, yeah. I don't want to step on too many toes there, but yeah, my decisions are always about my client, not about how much money I'm going to make from my client or how many supplements or forcing them to come back for another consult when all they need is a repeat, keeping them happy. And yeah, I, I think... I think that's a really important point and it's something that I harp on about a lot. So I run a lot of free webinars as part of my appointments practice management software, teaching Mm. foundations that I believe every student should know going into practice and things like that. And one of them is patient care. It's always about doing the right thing by your patient and not worrying about the money so much because the money comes when you are good as a practitioner and your patients are getting the results that they need they're going to grow your practice for you without oh you. God, they're going to tell 10 people. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. I think it's pivotal. And the other really important thing I want to highlight when you're in saying that, Kira, is that often practitioners are really worried about coming across as salesy. Like when they put something mm. out on social media or email or they ask patients to re- uh, rebook, there's always that, oh, God, I don't want to feel like a pushy salesperson. I don't want to mm. sell salesy. But when you are focused on delivering value, it's a no-brainer mm. for your client, right? You're giving them value. They're going to naturally want to exchange that yes. energy by giving you money for the value that you're providing. Yep. So when your focus is value, the money absolutely Yes. But there is one more thing I'm going to highlight that I think yep. may be a big contributor for your success. And you could, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think I am. And that is that you prioritize yourself and that is your health, mm. eating well, your exercise. You're obviously very athletic. If you didn't have that in your life, if you didn't have that personal fulfillment in your yeah. athleticness, let's call it, yeah. do you think that has contributed to your success because naturally being in a healthy state being able to have time for yourself allows you for to sure. more abundantly for your patients for sure you know and it's not i work at it really hard like some people that know me or don't know me very well are like oh but you always look healthy yours up i spend a amount of time and energy to try to stay healthy and i've had years where i've been a mess i I had chronic fatigue post-viral for two years and it was a mess and um yeah i do invest a lot of time and money into self-care again who doesn't love a massage (laughs) um but yeah i probably spend a lot of money on that do you know what else I th- I, th- I think what else is, and we've kind of covered this, but w- when I see a client or when I teach students or I mentor students, I don't hold back all my goodies. I will give all my best bits. Like I don't keep any secret formulas or I'm like, like, I'm incredible. I'm going to say this. I'm incredible at healing bones really quickly that people are struggling to heal when people break bones. And I have this, you know, certain set of protocols that I do. I'm not going to keep that to myself. I will literally teach anybody that asks me how to do it. And I, so I'm always going to give my client or my students, I think this is part of my success is actually in teaching other practitioners is I will give you everything I know and I won't hold back because if I can teach other people to be amazing practitioners and help people, that's my job. Mm. And I, I don't, I think that's been my biggest success 
is not holding anything back. Does that mm-hmm. does that make yeah. sense? And that's the same thing for social media. Like a lot of practitioners, are like I don't want to give away too much for free because then people won't book in to see me. But I'm gonna hear. I'm gonna say here, and and maybe this somebody might disagree with me. But you can give your patients all of the answers in 15, 20, 30 different posts and five blogs and all the information is out there. They still Patients want the personal. still prefer mm. to see you, to hold their hand, to take you through them through that journey. Yeah. So practitioners yeah. shouldn't be worried about giving value away because all they're doing is showcasing their expertise. They're building that know, like, and trust factor, which is mm. going to be more likely for that patient mm. to see them in the first place. So, yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. I, I think, too, being honest with your clients. Like, I... I probably overshare <laughs> with clients, but again, I'm often working with athletes and, you know, so they know I've done Ironman or they know I've run marathons and had gut trouble, or I I'm honest about what I've achieved, but I'm almost, I'm also honest about what I've messed up. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives you a lot of buy-in with people because they know you understand that you've been there. I think that's a big one, but also, I will show up and admit I'm sick or like one of my most viral videos on social media was me hopping on at the end of COVID. This is back when we were only just getting COVID. And I'm like, I have been really sick. This is how I'm feeling. And these are the things I'm not saying everybody should take this, but this is what I've done to support myself. And I'm still resting and I still don't feel good after a month and I can't do anything about it. And that I had so many people email me a thank you for how honest I was about how unwell I was. And as an naturopath, I hadn't fixed it in a month. And they were like, that's the best because it just made me be gentler on myself. So I think, I, you know, and in counseling skills and, you know, or, you know, keep the client there. I think some of my success has been because I'm a slight overshare and that personality won't work with some people, but I'm honest about who I am and what I've done good and bad and I think that gets me we like again this isn't correct counseling skill but I love knowing bits about the practitioners I see I don't know that if that's because I'm also a practitioner but I want to know who the person is treating me and so I'm a little more open than the average practitioner probably maybe I'm not maybe we all do it but we just don't nobody talks about it I think that's it's quite big that most people don't talk about the things that they may see themselves almost like a failure. Like as a naturopath, you've had COVID, you think that you should be able to get over it really quickly and you want to be able to tell people that, oh, yeah, oh, it was fine, it would breeze through it. But when you can be honest with people, they start realising you're just like them. I think that's it's a really yeah. it's quite impactful for patients yeah. or whoever is seeing you as well. So absolutely. Yeah. i got to work at it. i got to work at stuff hard, right? I don't, mm-hmm. some health stuff, I don't actually have an incredible constitution. If you just met me and you look at me, you'd be like, oh, wow, she's really healthy, 54-year-old, whatever. <laughs> I, the genetics I have some great genetics and then I carry the snips and genes for all kinds of stuff but I've just worked at it hard enough that some of that hasn't activated which yeah. is you know probably why I'm an naturopath in the first place is I was so scared of my genetics mm, and and just touching on the oversharing I just want to highlight that even if you're an oversharer, the people that are listening, even if you're an oversharer with your patients, if you're doing 
the way, the exact way that you've done it, Kira, and that is that you've given a lot of information, but you broke it down in bite-sized pieces as you're going through the consult. And so it gives them an opportunity to ask questions and learn more during that process. And so that person is actually going to be less overwhelmed Mm. through that process than if you Mm. didn't take that extra time to do that and then just here's all the information. And even if you are giving them a a lot of information at the end, if you're explaining to them that you know that it's a lot of information, but you're not expecting them to do everything, that's yep. all the patients need to hear. But like you said, then the patients that want more can do more and the patients well, they that come want back less, for more. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and I say this to my students that I mentor all the time. My and, and again, this is probably adds a lot to my success. And it's about not being as worried about the business side of how many times is my client going to come back? My job, and I say this to my clients, I'm like, my job is to teach you enough that you don't need me. I love that. That's totally my job. And if I tell you what to do, but I don't tell you why, because I'm a big why, right? I'm not going to justify it with 20 things, but I'm going to explain, you know, I want you to eat carbohydrates right after training because it's going to replace your glycogen and it's not going to turn to body. You know, I'll explain I give enough why that they can understand what they're doing it for. And then they end up telling the rest of their family. They're like, oh, you know, if you do this and if, you know, and again, I'm not working with a lot of chronic disease this day. So it's different if you're in cancer or chronic disease. I say to my clients, if you're not done with me in two to three visits, I haven't done my job. Like I, you know, unless there's other stuff we would now want to work on, but my job is to teach you enough for you not to need me, because in my opinion, that is what a true healer does is they teach somebody to take care of themselves. And you know what? I'm going to touch on that too, because I'm a big advocate for uh, repeat bookings, like when patients need it, but it's only oh, for yeah. patients that need need the appointments, right? Yeah, uh, and that's obviously because I'm working with a lot of chronic pain, and uh, for the yeah, practitioners working with chronic pain or chronic illnesses, it's obviously a little bit different. It's a different situation. Yeah, it's a different situation. But it's the power in what you just said is explaining to them, "I'm going to do everything I can to teach you how to look after yourself." Because even somebody who's got chronic illness or chronic pain, if you're telling them and empowering them on the things that they can do to help themselves. One, it makes them more empowered to do it in the first place. But the other thing is that they know that if they're not going to do it and they're not getting the results, they've got you there as a backup. Yes. So you know when that patient yes. walks away that even yeah. though you've told them this is what you need to do, they're not doing it, they're understanding that it's actually not you as a clinician not helping them, it's them as a patient not helping yeah. themselves because you've given them the yeah. answers. And sometimes I do that with a booking, right? Like I see them once or twice, then I'm like, look, let's put you in in six weeks so we can reassess how you're going. And I said, you know, if you get to the week where the booking is and you're like, I'm great, I don't need you. I said, just call me and cancel it. I'm totally good with that. But we'll pre-book you because I book out months in advance. I said, let's just put you in, but you can move it on me. I don't, and you know, a fifth of those clients call up and they're like, I'm doing so well. Let's cancel the booking and I'll call you when I need you. And I think for practitioners, it takes time to learn. They will call you back. You know, I have clients that go away for two years and then they're like, oh, I've just entered this new race. I'm going to come again. Or I feel like I've fallen off the bandwagon. I just need to see you for a reset. Mm, And I love those clients right? Rather than seeing someone all the time. I always feel bad when someone comes back on their fourth booking and I'm like, dude, you don't need me. Some, and sometimes I, I'll start a consult and we'll get 20 minutes in. And I'm like, 
you literally didn't need this consult. So let's just end it there. And I'm going to charge you for like 15 minutes rather than an hour. And they're, they're so thankful. And it's not about, yeah, I'm not going to make money. And I blocked that time out. But they're also going to be so satisfied as a with me as a practitioner. Mm. They're going to tell 10 other people. Absolutely. Like, okay. like ref referral, verbal referral from previous clients is the most powerful advertising ever. Like I have paid very, very little in my career of 30 years to actually advertise my services mm. would be services as an actual practitioner. I I would be under $3,000 in 30 years. Incredible. I will pay for social media ads if I'm launching something. Don't get me wrong. If I'm launching a new program or I'm, you know, launching a mentoring, I'll pay to get enough reach so people see it. So I do pay for advert, you know, and I have websites and mm. okay, I wasn't counting that. I'm I'm talking about pure paid advertising. I just your clients are your advertising. Which take us to the next point. If we've got time, I've still got two sure. more questions for you if you could sure, sure. this is fun. this is actually one of the best business interviews I've ever done. Oh, that's this awesome. Is awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to just touch back on what you just said about when you've said to the patient, you don't need me today, see you later. For me, I grew my practice all on referral. I never spent any money marketing myself. Mm. It was all just because I had really good patient care or my patients were my priority. Yeah. The money just followed with that. But one of the things that made me a successful practitioner was that the honesty. So I would say to someone, that they'd want to, I want to come back in next month and you don't need it. You will last. Let's try and push you out to six weeks. Let's yeah. see how we go over six weeks, right? And so when a patient would say to me that they want to come in sooner than what I felt that they needed, I would be honest and say to them, no, you don't need this treatment or no, you just need to do this or no, you just need to do that. And those patients appreciated me so much more as mm. a practitioner than anyone else so because I was honest with them. In fact, there was one patient who came to see me, referred by a medical doctor, couldn't sleep without having to call an ambulance at least three times a week. She couldn't lie down. Oh. She came to see me with neck, shoulder, and back pain, and it mm. was because she had to sleep seated. So I treated her, gave her relief, and I said to her, I'm sending you over to this chiropractor because you need much more than what I can offer. Even though I can mm -hmm. help you, you've got a much bigger problem at play. Having to call an ambulance yeah. three times a week is not good. Yeah. She saw the chiropractor one adjustment later she could sleep in her bed. She came back yeah. into my clinic. She loved the chiropractor, of course, but she came back into my clinic and said to me, thank you so much for doing the right thing by me yes. and referring me yes. on because oh, I got chills. You, yeah, yeah. You've, yeah. You've helped me. You've helped change my life. That woman referred more patients to me as yeah. a mind therapist than she did to the chiropractor sure. who changed oh, her life. Absolute chills. And I think that's so, that's I mean, that such a good point. Mm. And I will have clients try to book in with me or sometimes I accidentally make it all the way through and I'm face to face and I've booked the hour and they've probably pre, well, I make everybody prepay and I hear the case and I'm like, I actually know who you need to see. Mm. Let me, and I've done that multiple times. Every year there's a couple where I'm like, I'm going to refund you all your money because you don't need me, this is who I would see if I had this problem, right? Yeah. And they're like, no, no, I, it's your time, I'll still pay. I'm sure those people refer people to me all the time. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, yeah. And I think that's so empowering. 
I'm not saying not to treat things that scare you. If you're a general practitioner and you want to treat something and learn as you go, we have to do that as well, or we won't treat anything. We, you know, we, especially as a newbie, you have to be, you can't be like, oh, I know the expert in this. I know like that's how we also have to grow as practitioners. But if, if that client comes in that you're really, really like, oh my God, I do know who they should be seeing and it's not my lane. If this is not my comfortable lane, yeah. The, I, and I think I'm going to sound woo-woo-y, but the universe has your back on that. You know, you ref, you do the right thing by people. People, 90% of the time will do the right thing by you. And they'll tell everybody. They'll be like, oh, she's honest practitioner. And that's exactly how people refer that's to me. Want, she can't help you. She'll tell you. And that gives people the confidence to come in to see me because they mm. know that I'm going to give them the honest advice about what they need. And I think that's super, super powerful. So you mentioned about advertising courses and stuff. So that was one of the final questions I had for you. You've obviously got a diversified income stream. You've got yeah. ebooks, you've got courses, you've got speaking engagements, you've got masterclasses. How do these complement your naturopathic practice? And would you recommend other practitioners go down this avenue to explore additional income streams? And if so, when? Now, before you answer, I just want to put another little caveat in there because I see a lot online now where practitioners aren't becoming as successful in a clinical practice or they need an additional income stream and there's almost like this push that the only way you can make money as a practitioner now is to develop a course and sell a course and do the one-to-many model. So I'd really love for you to break yeah. all of that down and tell me how did you get to doing all this and what's your recommendation yeah. for people that are looking for that? And it's interesting because I'm a lot further down that line, right? When all the online stuff started coming out, like the very beginning of us moving to not online consults, but like creating programs, I actually got convinced by a personal trainer who had done a bunch of courses. They were like, you need to do a course in how to create things. And that was probably the smartest thing I did was actually taking a course or being mentored by someone on how to do that. So I was lucky enough to kind of jump online early-ish in the thing. So I had already been a practitioner like well over 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yes, people get to this whole, oh, I don't want to do as many one-on-one consults. I want to run group stuff or I want to have programs. Yes, you can create successful programs, but I have to be honest. Of all my additional, what we call evergreen income, my least popular are my programs. Oh, wow. And I try to push people to the pro it, you can do this like three week program and, and they're like, no, I want, you know, you create these programs. So don't, people don't come to you one-on-one. Every time I try to move someone to a program, instead of seeing me, they're like, no, I want to see you. I want it personalized. Um, and I still see clients. Um, much more successful for me are ebooks or webinar seminars. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if that's because I'm already a teacher and so I, my teaching style is very fluid, but my my great success is running online webinars. In online webinars, they then have the opportunity to buy programs that back up the webinar. And I do get good follow through with that. 
but the actual programs I wrote for clients, maybe I haven't played with it enough. Um, but, oh, it's, it's tricky because I also think there's so much knowledge and learning and working with clients that sometimes I think people creating programs don't have success with those yet because they probably haven't had enough time with clients mm. to write the right program. So I love when I see people, and I'm not saying you have to be practicing for years and years, but I, I, the students I see that transition to clinical practice and then also create programs usually have a few years under their belt before they really figure out how to create that program. Did that answer the question? Yeah, I think um, it's the it's the the people are jumping to it a lot too soon. And, and look, I totally respect it because we all want to be able to make a really good income stream. Absolutely. But the amount of time you know this yourself, it takes to create a program when you don't even know if you're going to get people actually buying it. That actually takes you away from that clinical skills, the experiences that you could have learned being in practice. Once yeah. you're in practice and you've got a good patient base and you've got a lot of experience. That and you've got at least a somewhat solid income stream for me. That feels like the right time to then go and write a program where you may be yeah. able to help more people in a bigger environment. But it saddens me a little bit to see so many practitioners moving into that space because they think that's the only way to make decent money. And no. I mean, you've done 20 yeah. years, 20 years before you even started exploring those avenues. Well, it didn't exist, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, and it's interesting because I always laugh at this. So I wanted to create, I'll explain this story. One of the first programs I wanted to create. So for me, education programs have been much more successful than clinical health programs, but maybe I haven't spent enough time doing that. And this year I'm kind of playing with that. But at one point I wanted to create this sports nutrition class online that I, it, you could just buy it and you could do it. And I never got around to creating it. Right. I had all the PowerPoints done, but I had to like film myself, you know, without an audience. So I finally I couldn't get around to doing it. So I finally went, you know what, I'm going to run it live and record it. And this is the first year Zoom came out, actually, because mm -hmm. I remember signing up. Someone told me about Zoom and like they used to answer the phone. And I was like, oh, this little company, it's so good. And I advertised, hey, I'm recording this program. So anybody who wants to join the program live, you can do it for 50% off. But just know you're going to be within my program and your questions are going to be there. And I had like 40 people sign up for this wow. program. So I, to me, I used to joke with the business, business mentor. I'm like, oh, my God, I got paid for creating a program. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way to do it, though, isn't it? <laughs> but it turns out that's my success is actually running things live, running education live, be it for clients or for I do a lot of educating other practitioners. So my favorite thing is to run something live, capture that, and then turn it into education. Mm. And that's where, I, and and I guess why I'm trying to say that, is, and again, it's different because I'm already a teacher and all that, but don't, for those of you doing online stuff, absolutely, it's a great area for extra income, but don't think there's only one option. Look at the different things you can create. Some people will create incredible programs. Other people, 
education seminar. There's so many different areas that you can do in the online, but definitely take a course or hire someone to help you. You know, my, my biggest success with all my online stuff was when I hired somebody to run the back end of it and put it together. And I didn't have the time to figure out how to do all of that. And so I, I actually have somebody that I pay on a monthly retainer and she's like, okay, what are you doing next? Let's create it. And so she's this creative organizational person. It would take me years to do that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it was expensive, but if you get it right, it works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My final question for you, Kira. I yeah. could talk to you all day, mind oh, yeah, you. But <laughs> uh, if you could offer just one piece of advice to natural health practitioners aiming to build a successful practice that they love, what would it be? One piece of advice. Um, hmm. Give yourself the time and the space to learn who you are as a practitioner and as a clinician. And yes, it can be a couple years till you feel really successful, but that's that's part of the industry and that's part of being in business anyway. Yes, you don't go out and work for someone else and get paid $100,000 right away, but, um, and, and adjust it, constantly adjusting what works and what works for you ethically and, and yeah, I, I would say stay tr- true to what you're comfortable with. My other piece of advice is you don't need another degree <laughs> to be successful. Get your first degree and go out and do it. Yes. And um... then if you want more education in an area you've fallen in love with, go do more post-grad. But I see so many graduates not sure how to clinically practice. So instead they go do post-grad degree, but you're still not going to know how to clinically practice. So don't, you don't need more formal education to begin with. You need more time to integrate what you already know and find yourself as a practitioner. There's my advice. I love that. Just on that, just question on that point, you said get to know yourself as a clinician, get to know what you love. Does that mean you don't advise somebody going straight into niching from uh, graduating? Unless you really have a thing, like if you have Crohn's disease and you've been through this whole journey and you're like, absolutely, I'm going to be small, large intestine, bowels. If you truly know what you want as a niche, go start it right away. But I also think it's important to stay really lateral as a practitioner because things you don't think are interesting or you don't even know are a niche will find you and you'd be cutting yourself off. I think people try to fine tune too quickly and it's being in the trenches of treating everything in the beginning where you really learn a lot of skill. Mm. And then, but yeah, I don't, I'm not saying not to niche, but I, I think for the f- first few years, cause you need every client you've got coming in the door. I think you're cutting your nose off to spite yourself if you try to niche too quickly. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. Mm. 
Kira, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. I know That's how busy awesome you are. Questions. Thank okay. you so much for your time. Um, the links to your Facebook page, Instagram, and your website will all be in the show notes for anyone who awesome. wants to find out a little bit more about you as well. Again, awesome. oh, I'm excited for this. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'll, a lot of good info. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to share it out with my audience mm. as well. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again, Kira. So great to see you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in today and I look forward to having you join me in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with the latest releases and for more helpful tips, look for me on Instagram under the handle Practice. This podcast is proudly sponsored by my appointments.